Tasmo Tassa Pakawato Arahato Sama Samputasa Namo Tassa Pakawato Arahato Sama Samputasa Namo Tassa Pakawato Arahato Sama Samputasa Bhutang Damang Sankang Namasami So I've started to chat with some of you, which is always a very uh, <coughs> important for me to make a human connection because I, I see faces but I don't really know what's going on in your heart. And uh, so I get a lot of... I, I, obviously I'm curious what works and what doesn't work. So if something works, I, then I build on that. If it doesn't work, I say forget it. Um, so that's the way a teacher learns, I guess, through feedback. And then also just to see the, the sincerity and courage and uh, uh, goodwill of everyone who, who does this work. It's really, it's really an honor to be, to be able to sit here and talk about my hobby. Um, it, yeah, it's amazing. <clears throat> And one of the themes that come, I think, came up was the the whole way of dealing with thought and the uh, seemingly endless rattle that goes on with thinking. But um, one of the one of the things I've been trying to emphasize is that uh, when you're and there was a question here talk more about stream of consciousness. By stream of consciousness, I mean just the, the various uh, mental, physical events that are happening in consciousness as you sit here. Um, so it might be sights and sounds and memories and uh, feelings and doubts and sleepiness and restlessness, whatever. So that's the stream of experiential events that goes through consciousness. And why I say it that way is um, to observe the changing stream of events rather than being the person who's trying to figure something out or identify with it. So it's what we call the witnessing consciousness. You're witnessing the, the various uh, events that, that are taking place. And that puts you in the position of, of uh, observer rather than uh, controller or judge or whatever so it's not it's not a request that you do anything about the events you're experiencing of course that's hard to do because some of the events you would rather not experience be physical pain or some endless um, earworms is that what they call them you know whatever like that so uh, just that is is quite a quite an accomplishment to 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 step back from the usual involvement, like like with thought, just to step back and notice thought as thought, is huge. That's that's really that's a big. A lot of people, you you tell them that they've never realized. Oh, you can observe thought, huh? And that's a big revelation, I think, for any anyone. I I, I think I had that revelation way back in. I was I had slightly longer hair. I was in Amsterdam, sitting around doing I don't know what, but. Um, it must be 1970, and the thought came to me, 
you can't put an end to thinking by thinking. It doesn't sound like much, but it was very profound. And I kept thinking. <laughs> Not as easy as it sounds. But it was a, like an indication, yeah, that, that, that's not going to be my pathway. And then, of course, then thought became uh, more apparent as an object, but still um, the, the drivenness of thought through emotional content was, was profoundly disappointing. <laughs> Just kind of going up all the time. Um, so our... our Practice isn't a, isn't a practice of getting more knowledge or information. That's not what we're doing. That's other, other areas. Other areas do that. So if you wanted to study Buddhist, you know, compare it to Buddhist philosophies, you could do that. That would be knowledge. You could study um, Buddhist history. That would be all right, too. Um, but now we're, we're not really... This isn't knowledge-based. It's experiential-based. And... Um, when you step back like that, then you begin to understand how the mind works and how suffering works and how to put an end to suffering. Without that kind of witnessing attitude, you, you would just be always caught up in stream of consciousness. Right? And so that's what we're doing. Um, so in the whole process of, of stream of consciousness, there's lots of thinking. And, and thinking takes up a heck of a lot of bandwidth, as they say. And uh, most of us um, get totally fed up with it uh, or, or uh, get fascinated by it or get, try to get rid of it. So you say, say something like worry, common um, cycles of thinking that we get caught into. And, and so there's some fearful situation in the future, some fearful scenario for a future event comes into, into the mind. The mind notices that. And then it starts problem solving. If I do this, if I do that, then I do this and I do that. If I do this and I do that, and then it seems like you're going to get a solution. And just when you think you got a solution, the mind will say, "Yes, but you haven't thought of this." Oh yeah. And then you're off again, and that's rebirth. You're reborn into the realms of worry. Uh, and and we all know that can go on for days. It's just one after another, after another, after another. And then, of course, as you start to maybe practice meditation, you notice that, and then you try to get rid of the thinking. Well, that'll work, sure. You know? But that doesn't work either. You know, okay, I'm not going to worry. <laughs> if only it was that easy. It's not. Because worry isn't something you're doing like deliberately. Worry is a, a force uh, in, in consciousness because it's habitual. And it's and and, and and stream of consciousness has been influenced in a way where whenever there's fear, there's worry. Say, as an example, and that's what it does. Each time uh, a fearful event looms in the future, then the mind's solution to that fear is thought and worry. It goes on and on and on. That's the only thing it knows how to do. So it's not like you're deliberately worrying, because if you were deliberately worrying, you wouldn't worry. Right? If if that was if that was true, okay, I just won't worry. No no problem. <laughs> and and so what what we're trying to notice in stream of consciousness is that worry arises because of causes and conditions. Right? So and the and the cause might be that you have um um what say 
you have to go for, uh, you know, maybe I've got a, uh, a skin lesion and I have to go for a scan to see if it's cancer, right? So then the mind thinks, oh, what if it's cancer? And then you run with thought. So, so it's not like I'm like deliberately doing it. That's just what the mind does when there's maybe, in this case, the unknown. Uh, or something else, uh, what you know might be some a mode of uh, annoyance, or and so these habits of mind are part of stream of consciousness. And what we're trying to do is not to be kidnapped by them, and uh, not to be preoccupied with them, because they themselves are suffering. But also, as long as we're preoccupied with these movements and stream of consciousness, that preoccupation uh, precludes or excludes the possibility of realizing the unconditioned. Our attention is always on the conditioned, and, and in Buddhism, the enlightenment is the realization of the unconditioned. So that's very important for me in my sense of why I do this work, why I'm a monk, is that I'm terribly interested in the Buddha's enlightenment, and obviously interested in my own enlightenment. Um, and not, in a, not in a selfish way, where I just say, you know, buzz off, I'm getting enlightened because that doesn't work either, but rather in a, in a like, more like a scientist, I suppose, and more, more like a, a man of faith. I have, I have faith of, that the Buddha's realization is, is, is authentic and real and, and doable and doable. And I've had, you know, Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Sumedho, so I've had examples of, of beings who are, um, to me, profound. So I know it's a human possibility. And so that's where my curiosity is. And I use that, as you know, those of you who have been with me, I, I, I use that language a lot, that there is the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unborn, the deathless. If there are not the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unborn, the deathless, there would be no escape from birth and death. Right? So that is a, a very important part of my intellectual structure. Now whether you take that on board, I don't know, but that informs my... Um, my 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 investigation and my um, my relationship to conditions, right? Because my 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 sense of it is the Buddha says there's something that is akalika dhamma. It's a time. It's timeless. It's not a matter of time. So what is what is a matter of time is birth and death, and and emotions are being born and dying. And bodily feelings are born and dying, and this body born and dies, and relationships are born and dying, right? So all of the stream of consciousness is changing. It's coming and it's going. And as long as my attention is preoccupied with the comings and goings of change, then I am not available. There's no possibility of noticing whatever the Buddha talked about. So that's why we need composure, and that's why we need to let go of worry. Not just because it's neat not to worry, but because then we have clarity, we have samadhi, we have composure, and then then the uh, capacity of attention becomes focused on awareness itself. So we see awareness of awareness, the awareness sense of being. What is that? So these are what we call like hindrances, and they're not they're not so. So there's like it's a twofold thing. It's not just being psychologically happy. It's just seeing if I if I if I can't get the mind free from this this uh, constant attachment to thought and all the emotions around it, then 
And there's no way I'm going to notice anything more profound than that. And that's all just history and habit, isn't it? It's just this, it's all, you know, it's like, it's like the smell of old food in your head. <laughs> it just keeps going on and on and on. Sorry. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, it's not new. It's not fresh. It's just like, yeah, here it goes again. So then try to get rid of it. And that'll, but that doesn't work either. So what it requires is, is the understanding that these things arise because of causes and conditions. What would be the causes and conditions for the non-arising in the future? That's the way we put it. Okay? So if, if I then decide to, like, if, if I'm using the example of worry, if I decide then to investigate the whole structure of worry, I have to step outside of the particulars of worry and see worry as a, as a type of, 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 of mindset where I get all caught up. That's why I have to observe stream of consciousness. Otherwise, I'm just in the particulars of my worry. I worry about this, I worry about that, and this and that, and, and it's endless. So I have to step back and actually say, oh, worry feels this way. So I say, you have to make conscious worry, obviously. Otherwise, I'll never understand worry. Um, and then I have to figure out, well, why? Why does, uh, why does it keep going? What keeps, what, what's the fuel for this? What, what's the energy that keeps this thing going? And, and so I notice that, that whenever there is the future and it seems dangerous, then that's very, very uncomfortable and fear arises. And what I don't know how to do is to, be to, to feel fear I need to alleviate the fear, and so what I do is I think. And that thinking is an attempt to get rid of the fear, isn't it? But just to sit there and feel the fear and not go to worry is kind of counterintuitive. It does seem like I'm getting somewhere with my worry. You know, I almost got the answer this time. <laughs> but, so at some point I just say, well, wait, 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 okay. I'm just going to see what is, what, is, what is fear really like? What is it really like to be afraid of the future? And that's a hard shift to make. And then I notice the desire to get rid of the fear. And this is where the Four Noble Truths come in. So the Four Noble Truths, there is, there is suffering, there's the cause, there's the end, there's the path. The, the suffering has to be understood, so you have to make it conscious. Um, the, the cause has to be abandoned. So you have to, f you have to figure this out. And you have to realize the end of suffering. So with, in terms of fear, my, as I often say, my big problem with it is I didn't understand its cause. I thought that the cause of my fear was, well, I didn't understand the perpetuation of fear. And it took me a long time to see it was the fear of the fear and the aversion to the fear. Now, I can say that in a few sentences, but I had to suffer for a few years to see that because it was so deep-rooted in me, and then my tendency was always just to kind of do something about it or, or think about it, um, that I couldn't, I couldn't get enough mindfulness or awareness around the fear itself. So I had to train to, to welcome the fear. Come, come in, all right, let's have it. And, and that's counterintuitive, to welcome some kind of suffering. But that's what the First Noble Truth is asking us to do, is make conscious this discontent you're feeling, any mode of discontent, be it the slightest sense of, of, of um, uh, friction with your partner or, or self 
disparagement, any, any mode of, of lack of fulfillment, whatever it is, make it conscious. As Andrew Ajahn Sumedho would say, stand under it, understand it, stand under it, make it conscious. And that's, we don't tend to do that. We either distract or, or think it through or blame. And just this kind of raw feeling of, yeah, I, I, I don't like being here. Or I, I, I really don't like myself. Or uh, I'm really, and what is it like? Hmm? So from that, you have a chance to see then, okay, what is it that I'm creating around this? Because this fear has come up. I haven't, I haven't asked for it. It's not my fault. Yeah, you know, if I really hate someone, it's not my fault. Because I, 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 I'm not doing it on purpose. It's just the way the mind's conditioned. That's very important because we take it personally in a way of blame. You know, you know, if you were a really good monk, you wouldn't worry or whatever it is. But so, so stream of consciousness is like getting out of the personal and seeing this as dharma. So then the, the fear starts to come up. What's the real problem? What's, what's the suffering? What's the cause? I don't want the fear. That's the insight. Easy to say. And then I said, if I, if I ever notice that, oh, there's the, there's the fear, and there's the, the not wanting of the fear, that's extra. That's something I'm adding, or that's being added through habit to this problem. And then I say, okay, so what's, what's the solution? It's the abandonment of wanting which is different than doing something about the fear. And that insight is the insight to the Third Noble Truth. You, you, you let go of the wanting. Huh? And then you can see what's the difference between fear and wanting fear not to be there. Now this takes some work. You know, this is, this is easy to, to, you know, throw out in five minutes, but it's, it's considerable work on the heart because quite often we just go off into thinking. And so we have to make like uh, uh, intentions to look at these fundamental um, contractions of the heart that we all experience and, and make it the project. And the project this year is I'm going to look at worry. As opposed to making a New Year resolution, I'm not going to worry. You know, you forget it. <laughs> you just feel guilty by January 3rd. I guess it doesn't work that way, you know, it just doesn't work that way. But you can make a project like, okay, I'm going to investigate the nature of fear and worry. That's doable, and that's actually, it is interesting, because it's the closest thing to, to, to your mind. And if you can figure that one out, and all the other ones that we have to figure out, then, then you begin to really liberate the heart from these uh, obstructions and, and, and uh, obscurations, as the Tibetans say or hindrances, as we might say, or defilements, as we might say, whatever you call them. And then that's the beginning. <laughs> you, know, you know, then you cleared away some of the rubbish. Right? Now, now you get a bit of space, you know. The, the bandwidth isn't all full with this stuff now. Now you begin to experience some, some spaces of silence. And then it gets more interesting, right? It might take you 15 years to get there. <laughs> Or who knows? Yeah? But what else is there to do? Right? Uh, like get drunk? Watch Netflix for 12 hours? Yeah, it won't last. <laughs> so we have no choice. You know, we have no choice but to get enlightened, as I say. I, you know, my, my, my first years of, of, of monastic life were, were very difficult. Oh, just you know, on so many levels. And oftentimes, oh, I wish, I just want to go to a pub drink beer and eat peanuts. I've, I've had enough. <laughs> you know, I just, 
but I had no choice. Once you start, you, the, the road of distraction doesn't work. It just doesn't work, yeah? even though you'd like it to work. So you, 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 you make conscious the very thing which takes up your most bandwidth. So then thought. Um, so watching stream of consciousness, thought, thought will, will you know, come into, into your field. And, and uh, so, so then what the habit of thought is then, as, you, as soon as you notice thinking, you'll try to get rid of thinking. That's the usual pattern. And people ask me, how do I get rid of thinking, Bhante? Or, or um, you know, whatever. But w- w- the, there, there, there are lots of moments in stream of consciousness where, where thought is interrupted. The, the sound of someone clattering in the kitchen. All of a sudden you notice the clattering in the kitchen. The sound of birdsong in the morning when you're sitting here. Uh, a pain in the knee when you're sitting. So there's lots of times where the whole drama of thought is interrupted. And, and the idea in, in understanding thought is to, to, to notice the gaps, as we say, and then to, aff- I would say, affirm the ending of thought. Because thought has ended, but what we, tend not, what we tend to do is we try to get rid of thought in that moment. Or we analyze why we're thinking so much. Or we think that if we didn't think so much, we wouldn't think as much, and you know, it, it gets it gets ridiculous. But we don't notice that thought has actually stopped, but it has stopped. And so my suggestion has been: know that you know. Now, if you if you really affirm that, know that you know. Or you don't do that. At least you make that suggestion. And then you see that as soon as you notice thinking, then you get into this, I have to try harder. That's a common one. You know, you're, you're doing walking meditation back and forth innocently, and then you've lost it for four rounds. <laughs> right? You've been in Thailand and talking to Liam, and then the bell rings. No, let's say that the bell doesn't ring. You notice it. And then you say, okay, I've got to try harder. That's not being awake. That's trying harder. That's a me trying to get something in the future called no thought, so I have to try harder. Now, I'm not saying then you just keep thinking, but, but what works, what works is at that moment when, you know, you feel hopeless or whatever, you actually just register, oh, it's like this now. I know that I know. And hold that. And that's different than trying, trying harder not to think. And it, it does work that way. It, it's a very insidious kind of... It seems logical. Yeah, I might, I, we have to try harder. Can I, okay, 20 paces, no thought. <laughs> it just does not work. Because thought will come up. It, it's not... It, it, you don't have a choice, I'm sorry. But it's arising, needn't obsess you if, you if you can begin to get the space around thought. So then the other way to do it is like if you've been thinking about Thailand or something, uh, um, and, and you notice that scenario, then stop and think deliberately for half a sentence. I'll be in Bangkok in November. And then stop. So you take like a very strong mood. It's very, it works very, very well. You have a strong mood of, of worry, say. Right? Oh, what am I going to do? And, then, and you notice it. Then rather than trying to suppress it, which we do, or just rifling on with it, say it deliberately. I'm 
I'm going to panic soon. <laughs> a weird one. Whatever you want. But you actually, you say it deliberately, and then you stop and say, I know that I know. You see, so you're, you're inserting the strength of, of presence rather than trying to be the person that doesn't think. Because that's just more self-view, more ego, and that's what's happening. Self-view is creating thought through the habit of emotion. But when you establish clarity like that, um, did I just do a cross? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, when you establish clarity, what you're establishing is, is the mind free from that, that ego, uh, egoic kind of thought, which is not becoming, it's not based on desire, it's clarity. And that, those moments, if you keep establishing, though, those are the moments which begin to have, uh, say, a kind of effect on stream of consciousness. Because they're now being um, known and they start to have an effect rather than just the habits. Whereas if you just try to go through this, I must try harder, you just cre it's the same ego. It's the same desire system. It's not really getting out of it. So it still fills your stream of consciousness and, and, and uh, your bandwidth is still full of that. So that's why, you know, like, uh, like this, this, it sounds like, doesn't sound like much, know that you know. But what is it pointing to? On Lompo Tomatoes, it's like this. It's pointing to something very, very profound. But you have to do it. You have to affirm it and, and say, yeah, that's, how, that's it, I'm home. So in that moment, the whole point of it is non-desire. That's because you're already there. Where's to go? But because you remember the thoughts, you get into desire and think, I have to get rid of the thoughts. And that doesn't work. So, so that, 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 well, that was the strongest thing, I think, that came from our, our discussions. And we all suffer from that one in various ways. Any, any questions around that? kind of that's a big one it's, it's something to contemplate and work on so right when you wake up you know your mind will be thinking about something you know whatever you were worrying about at 9pm you know at 5.35 there it will be oh great you're back <laughs> it just and and, but then you can say, ah, and worry feels this way. And then you've established it. Yes? You asked the person a question, but I was thinking, because, like, you know, we do this work and, and uh, to be able to calm our minds and to see clearly and, and the like. But yet, I mean, another option is to go see your doctor and get a little pill that just dulls everything. And, uh, you know, <laughs> that's what I'm sitting here going, hmm, you know, I'm sitting here going, why am I doing this work? <laughs> Beats me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why people come. <laughs> I've, I've never like, done, I've done pills, but not the, not the dulling ones. <laughs> no, you know, you've got anxiety, you know, you go see, you're stressed at work or whatever, you go see your doctor, oh, take these, you know. And so you take these, and then you, you kind of go on around, sort of like, well, okay, I don't feel much. Yeah. 
I, I, I've never done that, so I don't have personal experience. You'd have to talk to meditators who have done that, you know, who've taken that option. And I, I don't know. This is the option I've taken, right? It, it, medical. The, 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 what I'm saying is, is sort of that, you know, medicine is looking at the brain and looking at... Then, then you have to go to people who know that. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't have experience of that. Suffering, you know, so. Well, this is the way I deal with suffering. Yeah. So you, you, you know, you take it on board. If it's useful, you use it, and if it's not, you know, you, you find other avenues. Yeah, I, yeah. I just can not talk. You know, this is my little niche. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can see. This is, the quite, this is the one I found hard to read. I can see that the more we practice renunciation, the more temptations or opportunities present themselves. Anyway, I'm not sure what that question means, but um, that was a, several people are at the age of retirement, and, and renunciation is one of the paramis, one of the ten perfections that the the Buddha talked about, and, and I, I would really, those of you who have a chance to retire and uh, put down the, uh, whatever you put down, <laughs> um, to really consider as, as, you, as you live your life, how can you do less, I would say, because that's what renunciation is about, how can you do less, because to do, the, you know, to investigate and to incline towards the spiritual, to the unconditioned, that takes a lot of silence. And, and and if you're if you're silence both environmentally but also uh, in your own heart, and if your if your mind is always being filled with information, that's not immoral. It's, you know, it's beyond a question of, of morality. It just makes you busy. It just makes you busy. So renunciation is like the simplification of our outgoings, so that again I, I like this idea of bandwidth that it's not just filled with uh, all manner of information uh, and that you have a chance to do more like you, can, you sit in a chair and really contemplate the whole nature of presence and being and, and silence and these, these are interesting very very interesting contemplations uh, so like as people retire you have choices some right some some you don't have but do do look at like how can I how can I make my life less um, how can I make my thinking processes less busy? And, and it's up to you. And that, you know, in, in the classic Indian model of, of family life, uh, after raising the kids, and the kids are okay, and they're married off, and so on and so forth, the family person becomes a sannyasin, a renunciant, a monk or a nun. Uh, so that's, that's the model in India, isn't it? Yeah. And, and uh, it's quite a beautiful model. Not many do it, and and the ones that do it, their families are very upset. <laughs> I, I I met a guy in in uh, was it when we were in India last year, the year before, some time ago. Here, Dana's a samanera in India. In, when we went to Sri Ramana Ashram, and there was a guy there who was uh, uh, an engineer, I think. And he was in sannyasin robes, just walking around, living the life of a, a sannyasin on the streets of uh, of this town. And very well spoken English, 
family very upset when he did this. He just gave it all away and walked off. We don't have those models. We have street people, but they don't do it out of that. They do it out of necessity. But anyway, now that I'm suggesting you upset your grandchildren, <laughs> but rather that you really like think about how can how can a lifestyle be less complicated? We live in we're a complicated society, and and our society has very interesting complications. It's not that they're bad, right? All the things that you can do, but the mind then has to have uh, some, you know, just the mind needs space to do this this kind of contemplation. So that came up with several people about that uh, renunciation. How do I remain assertive? when I feel intimidated by others who view compassion and generosity as weakness. Also, why is it hard to practice generosity to some who may have expectations or it seems closer to obligations? So the first one, well, yeah, some work environments are toxic. And, and I don't really have a, you know, I, I chose a work environment which wasn't toxic. <laughs> so... Um, Like, say, someone like Ajahn Chah, no one messed with him. He was a shogun. You know, he was, that's what, one, one, that's what George Sharp called him. This man's a shogun. Fearless. Just absolutely fearless, right? And, and, and uh, he was the king of the castle. I mean, he had his own environment. He didn't have a boss. He had the Buddha as a boss. <laughs> so that's different. But you could see how someone who is fearless... Um, has compassion, but also has incredible strength. So, so I think quite often the the situation of compassion and generosity as weakness is when it's also conjoined either with a situation where you have no power, and when you have no power, and there's someone in authority over you that has more power and is. Uh, nasty, then you've got a bad situation and do the best you can to survive it, right? And get out of it. But sometimes there is also the situation where we also have fear and, we, and, 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 and people can bully us because they know how to find the, the fearful part of us and they know how to manipulate. That's what bullies do. We know that, right? So that, per, that part you can work on, that whole sense of, of, of fearfulness in relationship. And if you, I've had that as, as a senior monk, I've had, I had one nasty experience where one monk was just going for me, you know, like, monks don't do this. <laughs> and and he, he, he was a bit of a bully and he could get my fear button. It took me a long time to figure out that one, but I understood myself a lot through that. Of course, it was a very good environment. There was no, no, no one getting hurt and so on. I wasn't going to lose my job um, and, and so on. So it was hard, but then I didn't understand that fearful part of my heart. So if, if that's the case, if it's around fear, you can make an intention to try to um, uh, be aware of, of that. And then in terms of compassion and generosity, if, if people are not reciprocal, well then, you know, you, the fourth of the Brahma Viharas is equanimity, peaceful coexistence with the way things are. And then sometimes you, you can't be outgoing. 
you have to be reserved. You know, it's not it's not an environment where you can uh, uh, be vulnerable. You have you have to do that. And I I don't have that much in my own life. So it's good to talk with people in work situations that have that. Um, but yeah, if you have no power and someone else has more power, it's 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 not it's, it's it can't be easy. So then, if, if, if that is a work situation, then you really have to make sure when you get home, you do some practice. You clear it out. Or in the mornings, you get, you get some space where the tension which has been built up, because you have no choice, that you can get away from it and let it become conscious. Because otherwise, it'll just fester in you and give you ulcers and cancers. And we know that. So that, that's where daily life practice comes in, where you, you, know, you come home and then... You just feel this this tension or whatever coming out of you. Then you don't really have to meditate. You just have to n- not distract. That's hard to do. You'd rather veg out in front of a television because it's just so relaxing. But just to feel the toxic result of someone who's really cruel to you, uh, then at least clears it out for the day. And then, you know, at least in the next day, you have more chance of trying to be more equanimous and those are very important things. If you don't do that, then it's just the build-up is horrible. And then you have to, I guess, you go to that situation and say, okay, how can I just stay with my body, the bodily feelings? So then you might feel the impact of someone's cruelty, but you just stay here with a bodily feeling, then it tends to go through you. Very hard. Very hard to do. But if that's, if that's how life is, that's what your practice has to be. You say, well, I'm going to, whatever comes, I'm going to try to use it for practice. Because there's no use hating the person. That, that, just, you know, that just makes it worse, doesn't it? Feels good. <laughs> Feels good, but it doesn't really work. How, why is it hard to practice generosity to some who may have expectations? It seems closer to obligation. Well, because it just is. <laughs> You know, it just is. Sometimes some people you don't really want to be generous to. So then idealism. Don't feel, or um, feel what you want to feel, <laughs> but look at the ideal that, that you know, like, like that, that it should be anyway. You know, like we were talking about injustice, like that, that it should be a just world. It's not. You know, it's, just, it's not a just world. It's lots of injustice. So you're constantly coming out, yeah, well, this is where this character is. And, and then you see what you're creating around it. If you, if you keep doing that, it's like this, with another person or yourself, then at least you can see what's being created and atta- and around that. But these are, yeah, it's kind of how you learn about yourself, don't you? See, the worst thing is when you want to be genero- generous to someone and someone just puts a brick wall to your face. Very painful. Very, very painful. Um, but... I had that once. I was, I was, I was, uh, I was at a, a meeting in London of an opening of a Tibetan kind of some kind of Tibetan vihara, and it was a pan pan Buddhist meeting, and it's different schools, and I was representing Amaravati, I think. And it was a weird kind of thing. It was almost like a cocktail party. I said, oh. how did I get in here? In any case, I didn't have, I don't think it was booze, I think it was apple juice. But I'm sitting around feeling like a fish in a tree, right? This kind of, 
And this guy comes at me and he starts attacking me. And he says, you Sri Lanka, you, you Theravadans, you're doing this and you're doing that. And he was angry about some of the um, monks in Sri Lanka who were promoting violence against the Tamils. So that you have these political monks, they're not really monks. And they were, you know, so he was coming, kind of coming at me. But the thing is, I was totally vulnerable. I was just totally open. Oh, may you be well. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, it took me about a week to process that. <laughs> it's just, oh, I was such a sucker. <laughs> so that happens sometimes. And, of course, then I went back and I meditated and I had some unorthodox thoughts about this man. <laughs> and I just, but I just, you know, this is the feeling, and don't go to the thought, this is the feeling, and eventually, where do I, and it really, it was very interesting, that really surprised me. And funny enough, walking away from that, this is also weird, this is a segue, <laughs> I'm walking along with my mates, feeling sorry for myself, or whatever I was feeling, and this lady's walking a dog, big dog, and a dog jumps up on me, but licks my face. Oh. And what was that about? And, <laughs> and she says, he never does that. Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> but when, <laughs> when your heart is open, like Ajahn Chah's heart was open, but he was also fearless. There was like, like there's no one there to get hurt. That, that was the, the that was the profundity of him. So I think anyway, the more we do this, the more we come to that confidence and silence. The the, the more we respond appropriately. There there is a question here about the, um, the stream answer. Uh, should I go there? This is such a huge topic, to stream or not to stream. <laughs> no, I think that'll be cruel on you. Oh, I'll save that one. It's such a, you know, such a complicated one that I'd need another cup of coffee. And that's that one. And that's that one. And I, uh, what was this? Someone asked me, what's a good meditation for a monk? What does it mean for a monk to have a good meditation? <laughs> I thought or assumed that monks, every meditation is a variation on a good meditation. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> you, you want to tell them? <laughs> a good meditation is when you say to yourself, Lajan Chah would say, if your meditation is peaceful, then accept it. If your meditation is not peaceful, then accept it. If you want to meditate, meditate. If you don't want to meditate, meditate. So you get you get to where um, the mind's obstructions fall away very easily, and the mind very easily comes into silence, or um, like a difficult meditation, if, if, if there was a lot of material that you have to deal with from the past two days, that would be a difficult. So let's say I've had some 
some real kind of complex social situation in monastery which I had to, to deal with, you know, some misunderstanding or habit stuff, we call it. Um, and, and I, you know, I found it complicated and I was confused by the issue. Then when I meditated, then that confusion would be part of the meditation and it, and, and it would be difficult in the sense that I'd have to really um, put much more, well, it, it would be much more unpleasant, say, in that way. Uh, and, and so, but it wouldn't be necessarily bad in the sense that I would have processed those difficulties, so it would be good in the sense it would be healthy to do, and so on. But then otherwise, like on a retreat, and I have two cups of coffee in the morning, woo <laughs> there we go. So there'd be a lot of energy and vitality and, uh, and so on. But, you know, just because, you know, just because we can sit still here doesn't mean, you know, there isn't kind of, like, what, is it, what did Jim Howe call it, Jim TV? Remember Jim used to call that Jim TV? Yeah, you remember that? That there isn't stuff going on. It's, 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 uh, like monks are very good in, 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 in looking good. <laughs> we do that well. We got an outfit, right? <laughs> Clean shaven. But <laughs> uh, one last one. Can you talk about Tudong? and its role within the Thai forest tradition practice. Tudong is wandering, walkabout. Uh, so the, the, the tradition of the Tudong monk is uh, a, a monk who is a peripe, peripatetic, is that the word? Ooh. As opposed to, what's the opposite? No, yeah, Dhammasa would be, but there is a... Anyway, stuck in a monastery. <laughs> Peripatetic, and there is, there is anyway. So, in in the early days of, of of Buddhist monasticism, there were no monasteries, and the monks were wanderers, and they would uh, wander, and 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 they would just sleep in whatever fields were available. They'd be near a monastery, near a water source, and they'd go in the mornings, receive alms food, and go back and meditate in the forest or in the fields. And monks do that a little bit now, but there are no more forests left. And, and so monks wander and try to try to live that peripatetic life. Got it again. Um, as a kind of test of themselves. But now monasticism is, 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 is more... Um, what's the word? It's more in the monastery. And, and so the Tudong practice is not observed because it's very hard to observe. So try to do Tudong practice in Ontario... You know, village to village takes you four days <laughs> of walking, so it's very, very hard to do. Some monks in California have walked um, from, from uh, say, Redwood Valley in Northern California to Oregon. They've done it. So some monks have tried it. In England, some monks do it. So they actually just walk out the monastery, no money, uh, and just live on faith. And they'll walk, and they'll just stand in the villages near Chitter, so and uh, receive alms food and then just, you know, find a vicar's, uh, quite often they'll just park themselves in a, in a church vestibule or something like that, or they'll sleep out in the field, and uh, some monks have done that for periods of time. Uh, I don't know anyone that's done it in Canada. It'd be very, very hard to do. But Tudong also, the Tudong also is the, 
are the various uh, ascetic practices that forest monks do. So Tudor monk is also one who uh, eats from his alms bowl, eats once a day, um, only has three robes, uh, lives outdoors, so with various kinds of ascetic rules. And, and our, our monastic um, style is kind of based on this kind of Tudong style, so much, much simpler than, than like a city monk and so on. Um, but that Tudong tradition was very, very strong in Ajahn Chah's time. But now the habitat of Tudong monks is gone. Interesting that the habitat is gone because all the forests are gone. They're hard to do. But they're like up in up in um, Mehong Son, there's a monastery. I did a retreat last year. And uh, there's a monk there who was a, a wandering monk. So he would, he would uh, go for about six months and he would just wander among the hill tribes. And that's where the, the wandering monks in the Thai tradition, that's where they tend to do the Tudong practice because there are still people who live out in the forests. They do, they do, they do agriculture, but there's enough forest around. So you'll find uh, the Tudong monks there. And just as a last segue before you go to sleep, this particular monk is Malaysian. And he's an interesting man. He, he was a f very famous photographer in, in Malaysia, very successful. Um, and as, as, a, as a young young photographer, and then he decided he wanted to become a monk. And he became a monk, and then he really liked this Tudong tradition. And every year he'd go and just wander for six months on his own. And then he'd park himself near a village and go into the village. And the villagers are mostly animists, but they will support the monks. So he'd go through and people would put food in his bowl and they'd go back and just live under a mosquito net. And then he'd stay a week or two and then he'd walk, do that for six months. So you imagine, that's quite a challenge. You know, you, you don't know where your food's coming from. There's not much physical comfort and uh, you know, there's malaria and stuff like that. So it's quite a, quite a, um, challenging thing that monks, most young monks like to do that. But anyway, so he had a, he had a monastery uh, just outside Mehong Son, uh, which is up near the Burmese border. And he would stage himself from that monastery and then walk. And he, he went there once and noticed there was a lad about five years old who was in the monastery but not going to school. And he asked uh, the, the other monks who were there, What's with this kid? Why isn't he going to school? And uh, they said, well, his parents died of AIDS, and he didn't have any relatives, so he's now in the monastery. And, he, and the monk said, so he's not going to school? He says, yeah, we don't know quite what to do. And so he, he phoned his sister in Kuala Lumpur and said, asked her, would you be willing to support this boy if I can find someone to take care of him? So she said, okay. And so he found a retired school teacher and the retired school teacher took on the, the um, guardianship of the boy and so on and so forth. So two weeks later, there were three more kids at his door. <laughs> and uh, three years later, uh, he had three houses and 15 kids. Right? And uh, so and he said, this is a bit much for my sister. <laughs> so then he decided, well, I'm just going to have to start an orphanage but I'm a monk. 
So he decided to start a monastery that's an orphanage. And he got a piece of land uh, just outside Mehongson and um, built this really, really interesting place. So what it has, it has 60 kids, uh, uh, high school. He doesn't take primary school kids. And they are uh, mixed, boys and girls. And they, uh, they have a bus to take them to school and they do conventional education. They come to morning chanting. He requires that. And, uh, and, and the monastery is on the side of a hill, and on the second tier of the hill, there's a meditation hall. So also people can do meditation retreats. And across the stream, there are uh, facilities for lay people to sleep. Good, I think we had 60 people. And then above that, in the third tier, monks have kutis. So when I was there, there were 60 kids, 60 meditators, and 20 monks just coming back from Tudong. And you'd think it would be um, bedlam or crazy-like or institutional, but it was really peaceful. And the kids were so happy. All of us thought, these kids are really lucky. They really respected him, and he was, he was uh, you know, they didn't mess with him. Uh, but they were really happy. And he was teaching them how to grow rice, um, how to grow lentils and so on. They cooked for the retreat, uh, and they were really good at it, so he's teaching them uh, culinary skills, agricultural skills. Then they went to conventional school. His eldest, eldest kid uh, was an architect and was coming back and visiting when I was there. Um, one of the monks used to be a barber, so he set up a barber shop, taught him how to cut hair. He even had a sound room down in the bowels. He, he likes to make caves, and I never saw the sound room where kids could play drum and play guitar. So it wasn't like he was trying to make little monks out of them. Right? He was just letting them be kids. And they were, they were so self-assured and happy. It was really lovely, very inspiring. So we're all doing this retreat, and these kids are coming and going, and, and, and it wasn't, they weren't loud, or, but they were having fun. Really, we're quite wonderful. Yeah, that. yeah so he's uh, really admirable what he's done. And then after the retreat, we went to four monasteries that were in the Shan states. And the Shan states are illegal, or they're non-states, Burmese non-states on the Burmese side. But the Shan have an army, so the Burmese don't want to take them over. And there was a few monasteries right on the border, very poor. So we went over and we had, and we had a truckload of clothing for them. It was so inspiring, very inspiring. Shall we finish with a, some chanting? Oh, you want to do the Andamayang? Andamayang Damakataya Sarukarang Ramase Sadhu Sadhu Sadhu